You know, sometimes I get frustrated with my spiritual life. Uh, I see the gap between where I am and where I want to be. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I bought ourselves an early Christmas present, uh, a smart TV. Anybody installed a smart TV recently? You know, in the old days, you just bought it, you set it up on the shelf, you plugged it in, you watched TV. Not anymore. And by, it took us about, I think, five hours to install. And by the time we were done, we were both grateful that we hadn't killed each other. Sometimes I get to the end of the day when I lay my head down on the pillow at night. I start off wanting to be so kind and generous and loving, but usually... At night, at the end of the day, there's a lot of confession, repentance that I must do. And sometimes it makes me feel as though there is another power at work within me that is holding me captive. Well, during this season of Advent, we are using Charles Wesley's beloved Advent hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, to help us prepare for Christmas. And last week, we talked about how Jesus' first coming was a part of the sovereign plan of God since the very beginning. And though the world seems chaotic and oftentimes out of control, God actually is at work to redeem us and his world. Today, we're going to talk about how Christ's coming can bring us real freedom. Our hymn sings, Born to Set Thy People Free. Now, freedom is a big deal. Every human on earth seeks to be free to pursue happiness. But there's a lot of things that stand in the way, injustice and racism and, and poverty and hatred, to name but a few. And the Bible would agree with all of that, but it would say that at the heart of it all is the bondage of our will. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I want to do, this I keep doing. How many of you can identify with those words? Why is that? Why is it so hard for us to do the good that we want to do? Well, the Bible has an answer, and it's called original sin. That is, that we were born that way. Now, don't look for that phrase in your Bible. It's not there. But the concept is there. And it's the, the view of the nature of sin in which humanity has existed since the fall of man. You see, original sin arose uh, from Adam and Eve's transgression in Eden, the sin of disobedience. And it's passed down to each new generation. Now, the response of, of Adam and Eve was to run and to hide from God. And we have been doing that ever since. Why, why are we running from the one person, the, the only person who can help us? Because we are sinners. Now, we don't like to hear that. We like to think that we're good people who just need a little self-improvement, just a, maybe a, a, a makeover. But the Bible takes exception. It says that we are actually inclined to evil, that our will is totally corrupted by our sin. But that's the truth about human nature. 
In another Wesley hymn, Love's Divine, All Love's Excelling, stanza three says, Take away our bent towards sinning. I think that's a good way to explain and to understand it. And so next time your child or your grandchild is thrown a temper tantrum, you can just say, well, they have a bent towards sinning. That's all it is. <laughs> now some theologians call this total depravity. They say it is humanity's natural condition apart from God's grace. That it is only God's grace that constrains us from doing more evil than what we do. When well, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he begins in chapter 1 with a hymn of praise for all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Now the English translation doesn't show this, but in the original Greek, the first 12 verses are just one long sentence. Paul is so excited about what Christ has done that he just moves from one idea to the next without taking a single breath. And then he arrives in chapter 2 and he pauses. He pauses to remind his readers of what their life was like before Christ. And this is what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our f flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul pulls no punches. He says, we were spiritually dead to God. That they followed the way of the world, which is controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul, you see, believed in the, these forces that were at work in the world uh, for evil, and that anyone who was not subject to Christ was subject to these forces. You see, for Paul, there was no middle ground. A person either lives in a way that is pleasing to God, or they live a life that is self-destructive and judgment. And then in verses 4 through 10, he contrasts their old way of life with their new life now in Christ. And he writes, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, Paul understands the believer to be in such a union with Christ that when Christ died, we died. That when Christ rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. The strength of sin in our lives has been broken and we can lead this new life. Now, when I first came to faith in Christ, some of my bad habits went away with little effort. And Paul calls them the cravings of the flesh in verse 3. But pride and anger 
were much, were much harder and took years to deal with. In fact, some of them still linger. One of them is my bent towards perfectionism. Perfectionism causes me to have a, a high expectation of myself that I can never reach. It keeps me in this constant state of irritation with myself. And not only with myself, but with others as well. I have this inner voice that never goes away, always telling me to do better and to work harder. And sometimes that makes it hard to relax and to enjoy life. But my guess is, is that all of us here struggle with something. So how does this happen? I mean, shouldn't Christians be immune from this? If Jesus truly sets us free, why do sincere believers still struggle? Well, the truth is that we bring a lot of baggage with us, don't we, from the past? Fears and hurts and anxieties. And generally, God's grace protects us. But sometimes, sometimes we allow ourselves to be lured into the sphere of influence, to make de bad decisions, got it not by God's wisdom, but by our own self-will, by our own passions, and we're drawn into the influence of evil. So salvation does not end our capacity to sin. We still battle with it. Now the good news is the gospel doesn't just save us. The gospel can change us. I think verse 8 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. If you haven't memorized it yet, you need to do so. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Now, grace may be one of the most important words in the, in the Bible. The Greek word in the New Testament is charis, and it simply means gift. Now, grace is often misunderstood. It, it's not something that we just say at mealtime. It's not something that cool people have. It's, it's not this saccharine, sweet ooze that covers up all of life's ills and mistakes and, and, and failures, making everything sweeter than what it is. Grace, it's relational. It's kind of like your parents' unconditional love. It's, it's God relating to us in ways that, that transform and empower us. Grace is that God-given ability to, to lead a different life. It's something we don't deserve. It's something that we can't earn, which is why it's a gift. Now, we oftentimes talk about Three different modes of, of grace. And the first is provenient grace, and, and that's the grace that we experience before we're saved, before salvation. It's God's love coming to us even before we were consciously aware that it is God's love. It is God intruding into our life, wooing us and convincing us of our need, awakening us to God's presence, convicting us of our sin and of our need for God, telling us the truth about ourselves and then leading us to repentance. We find it first stated by Christ himself in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6. He says, no one comes to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. So we don't save ourselves. We're not looking for God. He comes looking for us. God is a seeking God. Well, the second grace is justifying grace. And that's the name we give to the, to the accepting, pardoning love that, that meets us in Jesus at the cross and, that, that, and the change that comes when we're set free from our emptiness and we experience God's love and forgiveness for the first time. We call it the new birth or, or conversion. 
or being saved. But there's more than that. See, a lot of Christians, we get, we get stuck in that, in that second phase. We, we never move beyond it. And this next grace is called sanctifying grace. And that's the work of God in our lives that continually draws us closer to Christ, making us more loving and more generous and, and more faithful and empowering us to be better disciples. In essence, it is the power to be remade into the very image of Christ that we become the love of God in and for the world. All three are essential for our spiritual life. It's like a horse. It's like a house. Do we have a, a situation back here? Are we okay? Everybody good? Okay. Somebody may need some assistance here. we're good all right so all three of these are essential for our spiritual life it's kind of like a house so the porch is is that provenient grace the the door is justifying grace and the interior is sanctifying grace but the end goal is our holiness the thing is a lot of us we we stop at the front door we never get into the house we, we are free people, but we still struggle with sin. So, so how do we get free? How do we experience the sanctifying grace that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? I think it begins by admitting the problem. And we don't do it tomorrow. We don't, we don't deal with it next week or next month, but today. We, we've got to stop telling ourselves, one of these days I'm, I'm going to stop. One of these days I, I'm going to change. We have to stop procrastinating we need, and, 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 and stop postponing. See, this is what I've discovered. And as the longer that I, the wait, that I wait, the harder it is. The person who really wants to change finds a way. The person who doesn't want to change always finds an excuse. So who do you blame? You blame your parents, your spouse, your boss. You blame the devil or God. You see, to break free, to break free, you have to assume responsibility for your own life. I do that sometimes by simply taking a personal inventory. How long have I been struggling with this issue? When and where am I tempted most? And so to change, I have to stop pretending. I can't cover up my faults. I have to be transparent. I have to be honest. I was talking to a guy who spent 15 years in prison. For the first few years in, in jail, he denied any wrongdoing. But in Christ, he, in prison, he found Christ and he became a changed man. He said, Mark, 
I finally decided to get honest with myself and with God that I had a problem that I had done wrong. And that was a major factor in helping me to become a new person. You see, there are some things in our spiritual lives that we need to deal with. But it means surrendering to Jesus Christ for that to happen. See, the truth is, he's, he's willing to help. You need a power that is greater than yourself to, to help you to change. You can't do it on your own. God will do it. You see, if God can, can raise Jesus from the dead, then surely he has the power to help us with our habits. Surely he has the power to help us with our addictions. It's, it's not a problem for him. And so the, the solution to your addiction is to simply choose the right master. We can be controlled by other people. We can be controlled by our lust, by our anger, by, by fruit, uh, food. I mean, you name it. Or we can be controlled by God. See, oftentimes we only want to give God the problem. But God says to us today, if you want me to work on the problem, you've got to give me every area of your life. You've got to give it all to me. We need to turn over total management to God, and that produces incredible power to change. And then finally, we need help from each other. We can't do it alone. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he said, Two are better than one, because together, if one of them falls down, the other can help him up. So how do we break the cycle? We need support. We need friends. We need encouragement. We need people who will pray for us, people who will care for us, people who will encourage us, people who will help us to stay on track. That when it gets hard, those are the people who will, will spur you on. That's why Solomon wrote, two are better than one, is because they can help each other up. And truthfully, if we try to do it on our own, I don't give you much chance of succeeding. People will say to me, Pastor, I can do it on my own. I don't want other people to know that I'm a human being with normal weaknesses and, and faults and failures. I, I want people to think that I'm perfect. But if that's your attitude, well, good luck. That keeps us in bondage more than anything else. You see, Christian maturity is, is not a solo journey. It's a community process. And the purpose of the church is, is to be a support group, to encourage each other. This past year, we've been experimenting with bands. Bands are not musical groups, but they're, they're groups of, of three to five people who meet together on a weekly basis to help each other to go deeper. It's where people can read the scripture together and, and pray together and to meet together. In fact, it's gone so well that we're going to start more of these groups uh, next year because we need each other if we're going to change. Now, there's mo one more thing I want you to see in this passage. Look at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says that when Christ was seated in the heavenly realms, that you and I were seated with him in the heavenly realms. And the interesting thing is that it all takes place in, in, the, in the past tense. So this is not something that's going to happen. It's not going to happen when we die and go to heaven, but that it's already happened. It's already a, a present reality. And you may not be aware of the status, but that doesn't change the truth of it. 
Now, I have studied the, the Bible my entire adult life, and I don't think I ever gave a thought to what Paul means when he says that God has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? And so I, I consulted my favorite Pauline scholar, a member here at our church, Pete Donjel. And here's what we think. See, Paul doesn't use this phrase in any other letter uh, uh, that he writes, except in Ephesians, and he uses it five times here. So this is something really important. This is really something he wants us to understand. And here's what he wants us to know, that we have a new and eternal position in the heavens. That we rule with Christ. That all the blessings that were won because of what he did on the cross, this cosmic victory, we get to share in that. And that we who have faith in Christ have already won because Christ was victorious on the cross. And so no matter what happens here, from headache to COVID to death, we don't have to worry. For in Christ we enjoy his victory. And we are seated with him in the heavens. We can't lose. But I think Paul also wants his readers to know this. That because of that, you and I have the power to change. That we share in that power through the blessings that he's given us. And if we really know this, if we really believe this, then we can be victorious over the things that hold us down and that keep us back. See, I wonder if we really take this victory seriously enough. Paul is claiming that we share in this victory. Can you imagine what that would mean if we took this seriously? See, here's what I've learned. The change is long that change is hard, that change is slow. But if we really want to be free to live life as God intended us to, to live, we have to be on this journey towards holiness. Jesus was born to make that freedom possible. 